For our Old Testament reading, we look together in the first four verses of the 24th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. We hear God's word. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is in John's Gospel in the fourth chapter. We begin our reading in the first verse. We hear now God's word. Now, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, 
Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you're now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all things. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Well, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all things. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Let us pray. Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is pleased to save sinners and to conform them to the glorious image of the Savior and Lord of all who bow the knee before you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for that ministry of your Holy Spirit, which you have promised and vouchsafed to your church, that he would lead all his people into the truth. 
Illuminate, therefore, the natural darkness of our hearts and minds, that we might be filled with the light of heaven and the light of your countenance and the light of the wisdom of knowing your ways. May we know something more of the splendor and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ of the gospel by which we live. And may we know this not merely for our good, but that he might receive great praise from his people. For we ask this in his name. Amen. The very last thing that John writes in his gospel, a gospel where John wastes no words, does not give us a syllable that is not rich with significance, but carefully, as a master craftsman, tells us only what bursts with the life of heaven and what summons us to the Lord who is our salvation, who never, ever wastes a word throughout this entire gospel, whose efficiency and artistry as a writer has captivated scholars and lay Christians for millennia. And who says at the very end of his gospel, now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Writing with an awareness of the unbounded enormity of telling the world who Jesus is and what he has done and who therefore has to do what every student hates to do, choose from among this body of material exactly what advances his purpose as a writer, which is, these things are written so that you may know Jesus is the Christ and the Savior of sinners. This John spends 42 verses of prime real estate in the Gospel of John, so that you don't miss this woman. So you don't miss how this woman's story is yours. And your story belongs to hers. This whole story, John could have written in two verses. Jesus passed through Samaria, shared the gospel of himself with a woman at a well. She told her townspeople... Many were converted. Jesus continued on his way. John tells other stories that way in his gospel. But not this one. Not this one. Right after giving us the remarkable conversation between Jesus and a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, which only takes 15 verses in chapter 3, Right after giving us the famous words every child knows that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and talking about how that son is light in a world of darkness in chapter 3 for only six verses. Right after talking about John the Baptist's exaltation of Christ as he must decrease so that Jesus will increase and having done this in only 14, 15 verses. 
It's as though John says, now I want you to sit down. And I want you to get comfortable. Because I have something I have to tell you. And we're going to take this one slow. And in fact, the woman of John 4, in whose story we discover our own, is no ordinary woman in John's gospel or in the Bible as a whole. John, who never wastes a word, for whom there are no disconnected, suspended, arbitrary motifs, who even gives us the time of day for a reason in all of his stories, gives us a story in which Jewish readers especially, but we as well, cannot help but notice an avalanche, an absolute avalanche of rich biblical meaning and life and light shining off every little feature of this 40 plus verse story. And friends, today, we can't go through them all. But my hope is that we will hear something of the glory of the gospel in noting at least some of them. One of the things we appreciate about John 4 and this woman through whom there are the refracting lights of a many-splendored gospel is that the entire story is very carefully written by John in a betrothal or wedding encounter type scene. And biblical, biblical readers and writers know this type scene extremely well. And they are in fact counting on you, the reader, recognizing the kind of scene John is describing. The betrothal type scene takes place with a future bridegroom or his surrogate having journeyed to a far land. Now think about how Abraham met his wife, how Isaac met his wife, how Jacob met his wife, and on and on. We have a future bridegroom or his servant or his surrogate having journeyed away to a foreign land, not in his hometown, but a foreign land where he encounters a lovely young lady. A lovely young lady who, without exception, is in the context of a well in these patriarchal stories of betrothal scenes. A girl at a well, and someone, either the man or the girl, draws water from the well. And then afterwards, the girl or girls rush to bring home the news of this stranger's arrival. And then the story always resolves with a betrothal concluding between this strange man and the girl, and the majority of instances only after he has been invited to a meal to eat. And there are three Pentateuchal narratives that are the prime examples of this betrothal type scene. Abraham's servant and Rebecca in Genesis 24. Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29. Moses and Zipporah in Exodus chapter 2. The betrothal scene, which has these main elements, is undoubtedly John's intention the lens through which we're supposed to read what's transpiring here. Here is a man being presented as the future bridegroom for the girl at the well. 
But wait a second. That can't be. This is no ordinary man. And we don't know any stories of him getting married. Or do we? And this is no ordinary woman. Isn't she just absolutely full of shameful backstory when it comes to marriage issues? How would he ever unite himself to someone so unseemly? In fact, her backstory is part of John's story. Five husbands and the one you're with now isn't your husband. That, that can't be what's going on here. Well, hold on. Let's see. Let's see if, in fact, that helps us understand what's going on here. Jesus ventures in keeping with the Old Testament scenes, into a foreign territory. And he meets a woman at the well. As conditioned readers, we immediately recognize, all right, this is going to be something like a courtship scene with an impending marriage. You have my attention, but how is this going to work exactly? Well, this whole story of Jesus meeting the woman of Samaria, unnamed woman of Samaria, at Jacob's well in John 4, sets the stage at the beginning for something that's going to take place later in Samaria generally, and which is rooted in the progress of the gospel as already happening in Judea. As a result of his success in Judea, people responding to the gospel, Jesus is getting a lot of unwelcome attention, and his rapidly growing popularity results in this significant following, and when it becomes clear to Jesus in verses 1 to 3 of our passage that the crowds are getting a bit too large, and especially when he hears that this is concerning the Pharisees no small amount, this is alarming them, he decides, I need to get out, I need to leave and go to Galilee to continue my ministry there. This is not the hour. This is not the time for me to come under the wrath of the Pharisees who will put me to death. This is not the time for my, my death. There's more work to do. I need to now get over to Galilee and leave these crowds. Verse 4 simply tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, as you may understand, uh, having read John before and studied it, Samaritan lands, you want to picture this, Samaritan lands are sandwiched right in between Judea and Galilee. The way around Samaria took twice as long as the three-day direct journey right across Samaria. Avoiding Samaria would require crossing the Jordan River two times to follow a path running east of the river. The way through Samaria, however, was seldom, if ever, chosen. Because going through Samaria was very dangerous. Samaritan Jewish passions and conflict ran very high. You know that part of the neighborhood you don't want to go through? You'll take the long way if you have to? Multiply that by many times over, and that's why you avoid Samaria if you are a Judean Jew. These are not my people. And they know it and I know it. And going through Samaria is a very risky enterprise. But Jesus says, I have to. I have to go through Samaria. We're not told why. We're simply told that he knew he had to. In John's gospel as a whole, this seems to be one more indication that all the things Jesus does, John 5, 19, he does according to his father's will, and he does only what he sees his father doing. Jesus' journey through Samaria is something clearly directed by his father, but Jesus doesn't stop to explain. He shows the explanation by his actions at this well. 
Now, who were these Samaritans anyway? There are some ancient histories of the Samaritans where we learn that the Samaritans believed that the center of Israel's worship should not be Mount Zion, but should be Mount Gerizim. And they argued this is the site of the first Israelite sacrifice in the land in Deuteronomy 27. That it continued to be the center of the sacrificial activity of Israel's patriarchs. This is the place they believe where blessings were pronounced by the ancient Israelites. Samaritans believed that Bethel, connected with Jacob, Mount Moriah in the Abraham story, and Mount Gerizim are all in fact the same place. And these Samaritans had a fourfold creed. One God, one prophet, one book, which is the Pentateuch only. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. All they have and all they recognize is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which informs what Jesus is doing with this woman here. They only recognize the Pentateuch. One book and one place, Mount Gerizim. Now the Samaritans believed that the people who called themselves Jews, those Judean Jews, had taken the wrong path in their religious practices by importing novelties into the land during their return from the Babylonian exile. These are corrupted, compromised people. Not unlike a discourse we still sometimes hear in the context of the church. These over here are compromised people because they didn't do exactly what I thought they should do in really difficult circumstances. So Babylonian exile, here are some people who capitulated to the stresses and the burdens of being in exile. They didn't do what I think they should do. The Samaritans were very holier than thou when it came to the Judeans. We only recognize the Pentateuch. You guys believe in stuff like a Davidic dynasty, which you get from these other books that we don't recognize as Torah. You hold to the prophets. We recognize no prophet. There's only the prophet Moses and a prophet to come. We have it all, and we are orthodox, and we know what we're doing, and you're the problem, was the Samaritan vision. That's not going to prove very popular with your Judean Jews. So you can imagine the kind of conflict that this creates over the decades and over the centuries. Which brings us a lot of light in understanding this encounter. Note especially verses 5 and 6 now. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. Now, John firstly mentions this town named Sychar. Why does that matter for John? Well, Sychar in view here could be the village itself uh, or one um, very near the old town called Shechem. It's the same place or extremely close to it. The, the text is calling our attention within Shechem and Sychar to a location very close to the plot of ground Jacob gave his son Joseph at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Now this is interesting. It shows John knows his geography including his theological geography. But there's more to it than that. What is, what is John calling our attention to? He's calling our attention to the presence of a silent witness in this whole encounter. Jesus and this woman are not, in fact, alone, John is saying. Who else is there? Joseph is there. Joseph is there. The bones of Joseph, at the end of the book of Joshua... The bones of Joseph are brought and buried right here. Joseph is a silent witness to this encounter. 
The reason for this mention of Joseph in verse 5 will become even clearer when we see just how much this woman has not sinned, but then sinned against. In Joseph-like fashion, who has suffered in her life in a way that recalls the story of Joseph, not least because Joseph's suffering became the occasion of bringing salvation to Israel in a time of famine. The Samaritan woman's grievous suffering will lead in its own way to the salvation of Israelite Samaritans in her locale. John tells us, Jacob's well was there, verse 6, and Jesus sits there at noontime. Now this is what started, this little mention here is what started a tradition, understandable but misguided, of reading the Samaritan woman as a woman of ill repute. Why would she come at noon? This is not the time you go to get water from a well in Palestine. In fact, you go just about any other time of day. You go when it's cooler in the morning or cooler in the evening. You don't come when it's blisteringly hot in the middle of the day. Surely she can only be coming at noon because she's avoiding the crowds of other women in the town who maybe have been talking up stories about her and her, and her background, and she's trying to avoid, uh, avoid encountering them. A lot of speculation here. But why would she avoid people? It's at least not necessarily because of something she has done or something in her past. It may instead be reflective of another kind of defilement, a cultic rather than moral one, that has to do with her marital history, but not because she has been a guilty party, but because the kind of defilement she knows is the effect of being run out of marriages by men in a serial fashion. We'll get to that again in a moment. We should not miss this fact, which John makes sure to mention near the end of our story. That this woman leaves Jesus and goes back to this town, to this village, to her people. And she tells them about him. And then the people say, why would we ever trust you, you sinner? Why would we ever believe a word you say? You have no credibility with us. You're a defiled, sinful woman with a checkered past. You have no standing with us. Is that what they said? No. John says they listened to her, they believed her word, and they come out to see for themselves. Nothing in this passage suggests that she enjoys social stigma because of her behavior. They don't regard her as deceitful. They don't regard her as unworthy of their trust. Instead, when she tells them what remarkable things she has just encountered, they believe her and they go to find out more themselves. Now, how does this inform what John is saying about the conversation itself? Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why would you ask me? The Samaritan unlikely recognizes that Jesus is a Judean Jew because of his distinctive traditional clothing. Jesus would likely have worn ritual fringes in obedience to the law of Moses. And since Samaritan men observe the Mosaic law too, it's likely that the Samaritan woman's former husbands and other men in her village also wore this fringed garment. 
Jesus initiates a spiritual conversation when it's clear she knows what's going on. He's not from around town, and they don't usually have conversations like this. The woman begins to ridicule, it would appear, Jesus' statement by pointing out, by the way, you don't have the well you need to draw water here. How are you going to fulfill your offer, giving me water that's not going to run out? Very uh, succinctly, John tells us of a conversation where Jesus is moving her to greater and greater appreciation of the nature of her spiritual problem and the nature of his spiritual remedy. And then we finally get to this mention of the five successive husbands. Now, while this might on its own suggest some untoward behavior in her past, in fact, the passage we read just before our reading in John is the key background passage for John 4. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, we have a Torah piece of legislation this woman would have known extremely well, because again, they read the Pentateuch, and which informed a lot of other things Jesus said about divorce in Matthew's Gospel especially. You see, there was a problem reaching way back in Israel's past and very, very common in the first century, where Jewish men would marry a woman, seize upon her dowry, now being the lawful Um, the lawful possessor of that dowry, and then having enjoyed and exhausted that dowry, dispense with the woman and go on to the next one. It was not uncommon. It was scandalous, but it was happening. And the scene in, in John 4 is described very much in Deuteronomy 24 terms, which is not a scene of a woman committing sin and therefore being run out, but being sinned against by being driven out without grounds over and over and over, by men whose only goal is acquisition. In the story, this woman goes through husbands, but at least they were willing to enter into some degree of responsibility with respect to her. But now she's with someone who isn't even going that far. Now she's with someone who isn't even her husband, has not even entered into any kind of formal obligations. Maybe she's completely out of resources. There's nothing for him in a dowry anymore. She is absolutely spent and without any resources whatsoever. whatsoever. Now she is simply an object of his pleasure. And because she needs, in her vulnerability as a divorced and single woman, because she needs security and safety, perhaps that is why, not uncommon in the first century New Testament context, maybe that's why she's with him at all. So that at least she's not on the streets. At least she's not in the middle of nowhere, in troubled Samaria. At least there's somebody, there's some man around to look after her when things get crazy. And the cost of this is that she doesn't even enjoy a marriage relationship. She's with someone who won't even go that far. It appears to be the reason that particular notice sounded. You had five, and the one you're with right now isn't even your husband. And she doesn't deny it. She says, yeah. Yeah, that's my story. And then the reader remembers, wait a second, this whole thing was set up like a betrothal scene. What possibly could the good news be that Jesus would give a woman like that except that he is going to tell her that he will be for her what no man has been willing to be for her. That he will be the one who secures her welfare. And and more than that, who doesn't just give her water from a well, but did you notice his language? Makes her a well. 
of perpetual living water. The language in John 4, verse 15, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, will become in him. Sometimes we read this passage and we assume Jesus is the well. But did you hear what Jesus just said? The water I will give him will become in him, in that person, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. From here, the conversation goes into the theology questions of worship, which we might think is irrelevant to the real drama of the story. But in fact, Shechem, where Joseph's bones are buried, which is right in their environment as they're having this conversation, was not just the place of Joseph's bones, it was also a city of refuge. It was a place in the Old Testament where someone went to avoid unholy vengeance by a family who's lost a loved one in an unintentional act that killed them. If you unintentionally killed someone and you needed a safe haven from their vengeful family, you went to a city of refuge and you were okay there. Here they're having a conversation then with Joseph's bones as a silent witness in a city of refuge for a woman who needs one and having a conversation about water and life where the husband-to-be is making his bride-to-be herself a well of living water. John only had so many words he could write in his gospel, but he wanted to make sure we heard those. Maybe because of what he will go on to say in the last book of our New Testament. Can I just remind us of some of the last words in our Bibles? Revelation chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city. What city? The city that was just mentioned as the bride. The city which is the bride of the Lamb has the water of life, boy, it sounds familiar in John 4, has the water of life flowing from its roots in God and His throne right down the middle of her. You know, reading John 4, you can't help but think of the Levitical woman in chapters 12 and 15 who goes back and forth between states of uncleanness and cleanness in her proximity or distance from sacred space, like tabernacle and temple. 
And that whole difference between being near or being far, being able to come close to God's holy dwelling place, and so much that one is identified with it, and then needing to be far away from it. And what was that difference maker? It was about fluid coming from the center of her. And now in the last book of the Bible, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman about in her, a well of living water, a river of living water will flow, bursts out as a picture not of an unnamed woman in Samaria merely, but of a picture of you and a picture of me as together we belong to this glorious bridal city body of the Lamb. What good news for those whose backstories are checkered and extraordinary. For those whose story is anything other than what we would have written ourselves. Whose lives are maybe full of conflict, danger, and risk. The bones of Joseph, as a silent witness of this holy conversation, have borne witness to a greater Joseph from whose suffering, from whose suffering salvation would come to the ends of the earth. And that salvation would come to the ends of the earth by way of, and not apart from, a bride he joins to himself and doesn't merely forgive, but makes one who was barren, unbelievably fruitful. A veritable fountain of constantly flowing, living water. Is it because she's the source? No, he is the source. But what he gives, he gives through her. And so today, friends, today we come to a table where he continues to be the source of every good gift the real life you need. But you know how he will give it to you? He will give it to you through her, through, his, through, the, through that which is his body. He will give it to you through the church. This will be the bread and this will be the cup in which the body and the blood of Christ are yours, but not because you're off in the distance in your private individual party, sitting in your closet looking at a flickering screen. Because you're here, you're among God's people, and you rejoice in the bones of Joseph, which are now the body and blood of Jesus Christ, in whose suffering we don't have meaninglessness, we don't have futility, we have a suffering that is mysteriously, yet undeniably turned unto the salvation, not merely of Jews from famine, but the world from sin and death and evil and shame. And it looks like his love of a bride, his love of a girl at a well, where the true Abraham and the true Jacob and the true Moses meets his true bride and doesn't merely join himself to her at the well, but God be praised, makes her a well, makes her fruitful, makes you fruitful, so that here we come for no ordinary drink, and no ordinary food, but for the living food that makes us alive for the glory of God, who remains in his gospel the source of every 
good thing. The story of John 4, told at such length, is told so that we will not rush past a woman whose story is yours and in whose story we discover who we really are. Don't rush past her. She's anonymous for a reason, so that your name can be placed there, so that your story can be told here, and whatever has looked like shame can be turned to praise and honor, and whatever has looked hopeless now is a well-founded hope forever. And Christ is fully yours, as we are fully his. God be praised. Let us pray. O Father and faithful God, we thank you for the gospel of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he gives himself to his people still on the foundation of the once-for-all sacrifice of himself for our sins. And that in his offering, in his gift, he remains the source of life for all who drink from him and become in him a well of living water. We thank you, therefore, for your church, the bridal city of your eternal love, the object of your mercy, the family and household of God. And we pray that what we have heard and what we have considered might be not only to the edification of our minds and of our conversations, but might be indeed to the praise of your glory, which we seek in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.